Good morning. It's good to see everybody again. It's good to be back. The topic of our sermon today is called to serve. Called to serve in humility. Called to serve in love. And called to serve in thankfulness. The main one that we're going to see is humility. George Washington Carver was a scientist from a prior generation. He's the scientist who invented hundreds of useful products for the little peanut. And here's what he said. He said, when I was young, I said to God, God, show me the mystery of the universe. And God said, George, that knowledge is reserved for me alone. So I said to God, God, show me the mystery of the peanut. And God said, George, that's more nearly your size. And he showed me. That's a statement of humility. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines humility as freedom from pride or arrogance. And that's true. Humility is not thinking higher of yourself than you should. That's true. But it's also not thinking lower of yourself than you should. What I mean by that, I did that for effect. (laughs) What I mean by that is, If I say, well, you know, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, and I'm really trying to manipulate other people so that they say, wow, Garcia's a humble guy. I'm trying to to manipulate others by saying, "I'm, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. That's really a prideful act on my part. And so humility is not thinking higher of yourself than you should. Humility is not thinking lower of yourself than you should. It's just thinking of yourself less often. Humility is just thinking of yourself less often. And the scripture says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The Greek word therefore opposed is the ancient, ancient, ancient Greek word antitasso, which is a, it's a, it's a warfare word. It's a word that describes someone who's aligned against someone else in battle. And so God says, Garcia, when you're proud, I'm aligned against you as a warrior against someone in battle. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says that we all suffer from pride. It's like a plague that infects all of humanity. Here's what Lewis says. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes, hates, when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they're guilty of themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking about is pride, Lewis says, or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. In our passage today, Jesus is going to teach us about humility. He's going to teach us about humility by his actions and by his words, but first, he's going to show us love. Please turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to John 13, John 13, verse 1. And as you turn there or you toggle there on your iPhones, let me give you a little context. 
This is the Last Supper. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And in the morning, he's going to be brutalized and crucified. And by the afternoon of the next day, he will be dead. That's the background. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus is going to show us that love motivates humility. Love motivates service to God and to God's people. And notice this phrase towards the, towards the end of this passage here, the end. It's the Greek word telos, right? At the end of the, the, the passage, it says, he loved them to the end. That's the Greek word telos, which means the end of something, like you have a sequence of events. You're walking, you're walking, and then you get to the end of your steps, the end of something. So here, this is the end of Jesus' life. He loved them to the end of his life. But there's another meaning for the, for the noun telos in the Greek, and that's something in full. And so one of the amazing things that John does through the inspiration of the Spirit is he uses words carefully. Like all the authors, little a, the, the capital A author of the Scripture is the Holy Spirit, who uses, used men to record the Word of God, what John does is he uses these words very carefully. He uses the, the noun telos on the screen there. And in the morning, the next day, he uses the cousin of this word. The cousin of the noun is the verb teleo. Because on the next day, Jesus, when he hangs on the cross and he finishes his time on the cross, he uses the word teleo, which is the verb when he says tetelestai. Here's what's going on. Tetelestai is the perfect tense of the, the verb teleo, which means to finish. When Jesus, at the end of his life, at the end of his time on the cross, when he's paid for the sins of the world, he says tetelestai, perfect tense, which means the action is finished. It's finished. In the past, with ongoing results. Ongoing results forever. So what's going on here with these word choices that John is making is he's telegraphing for us. He's broadcasting for us. Jesus is going to do this act of foot washing of the disciples. We're going to see this, this small act, although it wasn't that small, but this small act, it's small in comparison to this act of humility. He does a small act of humility here in the, in the foot washing service to God, forecasting, telegraphing what he's going to do in the morning, what he's going to do tomorrow, his ultimate act of humility, where he dies for the sins of the world. And so John is choosing his words very carefully, because in the morning, Jesus is going to use the word related to this, to, to leo. And notice what's going on in this passage. Notice the, the, the word love. It shows up twice. John is making a point. He wants us to, to realize what's going on here. It's true that God loves the world. That's a true statement. Jesus is the God-man. God loves the word. 
John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that's God the Father, that he gave his only begotten Son, that's God the Son, Jesus, the God-man, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. That's a true statement. God loves his enemies. That's the world there, right? Because we're born sinners. We're born rebels. And so God loves the world so much that he gives the world a way out, which is through Christ. But that's not the love that John's talking about here. John's talking about how Jesus loved his disciples. What does it say? Having loved his own who were in the world. He loved his disciples. His disciples are called his own. And all believers are called his own. In Titus 2.14, we as believers are the people of his own possession. So John is building here. He's building this emphasis of love because Jesus is going to do foot washing here this, this, on the, in the upper room telegraphing his love that he's going to do. His ultimate act of love he's going to do the next day. But I have to be careful. I have to be careful about the, the, the word love because our, wor- our world, our culture has cheapened that word, right? I mean, the culture's redefined love. Love is now defined horizontally. It's between we humans, independent of God, apart from God. Let's take the flashpoint of our culture, homosexuality, right? If I say homosexuality is contrary to God's design, homosexuality is an offense to God, is a sin, Well, now I am deemed as being unloving. And in some Western nations, I've committed a crime under the hate speech law because it's defined as unloving. That's because the world has redefined love on a horizontal level. If I say that and the person who hears it doesn't like it, then it's deemed as hate speech. Here's the problem. God says, I'm love. I've got the monopoly on love. God doesn't just have an object of his love. His very essence, his nature is love. And so he says, I define love. No one else. So we have to go to the scripture to define love. We have to look vertically first to understand what love is. And then we express the love horizontally. We have to look to God first before we understand what love is. And then we express it horizontally. So speaking the truth about God's Word is is not hateful. It's loving. It's hateful to not speak the truth. Now, we're supposed to speak it in love. So, So let me just take a moment and go to that familiar passage that I know we've all heard before about love. Because if we're going to talk about love, let's talk about how God defines it. 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. There's 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. And then we get to verse 6. And this is what causes the world's redefinition of love to fall apart. In 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love does not rejoice in what? In unrighteousness. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. 
bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, endures all things. In short, love is the opposite of selfishness. Love and humility go hand in hand. If humility is thinking of yourself less often, love is the opposite of selfishness. These two things are linked. This is why Jesus, when he came, he said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve he says in Mark 10.45, or he's called the servant of the Lord. So the practical application here when it comes to love is pretty simple. Love people and use things. Love people and use things. Don't reverse those. Don't love things and use people. That's the practical application about love. Now the final thing I want to address in this passage is notice at the beginning of the passage where it says now before the feast of the Passover Jesus knowing that his hour had come that's different than earlier in his ministry right when he claimed to be the I am and the Pharisees sought to seize him to kill him that's different than earlier in his ministry when he equated himself with the father by saying I and the father are one When he says, I am, that's not just, hey, I am. He's claiming the title of deity. Remember when Moses was speaking to the burning bush, or excuse me, when the Lord was speaking to Moses through the burning bush in Exodus, and the Lord told Moses, you go to Pharaoh and you go to the Israelites and you tell tell them to pack their bags and you tell them to tell Pharaoh, adios, because we're leaving. And, And Moses says, Who do I tell the Israelites sent me? And God says, you tell him I am sent you. You tell him I am sent you because that's my name. It it reveals the eternality, the, the foreverness of God. And so when Jesus claimed to be the I am and the Pharisees went to seize him, to kill him, the scripture says in John 7.30 that... They were unable to because his hour had not yet come. Or when Jesus claimed, put himself on the same level as the Father, and the Pharisees went to seize him, to kill him, it says in John 8.20 that they were unable to because his hour had not yet come, but now his hour's here. And that's because God, like the master chess player times a trillion, has been moving the events of human history methodically gradually step by step since the rebellion in the garden of eden of adam and eve to this hour to this time because your god is unstoppable nothing and no one can stop the plan of god and the plan of god is to send the savior of the world who is a servant who was called to serve in humility in love and so tomorrow He will hang on the tree and the Father will lay the sins of you and me on Him. When I say tomorrow, I mean the next day in this passage. Verse 2. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So what John does here is he just steps back for a minute. He says, hey, let me just tell you, Judas is going to betray Jesus. The devil's already put it into, into Judas's heart. He just kind of steps back and gives us a little background, and then he jumps right back 
into the account of what's going on. John 13.3 Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from, forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside His garments. And taking a towel, He girded Himself. Then He poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which He was girded. This is Jesus' humble act of foot washing. Back then, they didn't have smooth, clean streets like we do. They didn't have concrete. They didn't have asphalt. Their streets were nasty. Their streets were, were, were dirt streets. And so the cattle would come through, the, the sheep, the goats, and they would, you know, drop their business. And it was muddy. And people walked with open-toed sandals. They didn't have shoes that covered their whole foot. And so the excrement, the, the mud, the gunk, would get into their toes and their toenails around the, around the heel, and, and it was pretty nasty. So the custom was for a servant, actually I used the wrong, wrong word, for a slave, for a slave, the lowest of the slaves in the household, it was his responsibility to do the nastiest of the tasks, the most demeaning of the tasks. And that was to clean the feet of the guests. So Jesus, the I Am, does something that's very uncomfortable for the disciples. Very awkward. He gets up from the table, because back then they didn't have you know, chairs that we sit on. They would recline, their feet would be here, and they'd be reclining on their, on their left elbow, maybe on a pillow. He gets up, he takes off his outer garment, and he takes a towel, he would have had an undergarment, he takes a towel, he wraps it around his undergarment, meaning he puts on the attire, he puts on the clothing of a slave, the lowest of slaves. And then he takes the basin, he takes the bowl of water, he gets on his knees, takes the bowl of water, dips the end of the towel in the water, and starts to clean the excrement and the mud and the gunk out of the disciples' toes and toenails and around the heel, just the whole feet, the whole foot, meticulously. He's the God of the universe! And he cleans the excrement and the mud from their toes and it makes them feel most uncomfortable. Peter, in a moment, is going to feel, whoa, what, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? Peter says in the next verse, whoa, verse, verse 6, so he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Peter's motivation's right. I mean, Peter realizes Jesus is Lord. And so he feels really uncomfortable about that. But Peter is confused because he doesn't understand that God requires humility humble service from all of his servants, even from Messiah, Jesus, the God-man. And the reason Peter doesn't understand that is because, and, and Peter's really just, just 
representing the disciples. It's all of them that are confused here. It's because they had been valuing pride. The disciples, please turn in your Bibles to Luke, over to Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 24. This is the parallel passage in Luke where they're in the upper room. And these, the disciples, Jesus is going to be crucified in the morning and the disciples are busy arguing over who's the better believer. In Luke 22, verse 24, we read this. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. So these guys are arguing among themselves. You know, Andrew says to, to John, I'm a better believer than you are. And John says, no, you're not. And then Peter says, I'm better than both of you guys. I mean, they're arguing among themselves about who's the better believer, who's more spiritual, who's more godly. They're valuing pride over humility. Verse 25, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. Lord what? Lord what? They lord what over them? They lord power. They lord authority over them. And those who have authority are called, over them are called benefactors. Jesus is saying the world values pride and uses power, uses authority to prop themselves up. That's the culture. It was the culture then. It's the culture now. Verse 26. But it is not this way with you, Jesus says. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest. In other words, like the most humble. And the leader like the servant. Jesus says God's standard is different than the world's standard. Not so with you, Jesus says to these disciples. And you see this great term at the end. And the leader is to become like the servant. There's a great term to describe godly leadership. Servant leader. It sounds like an oxymoron. You know, when you put two words that don't really go together like jumbo shrimp or freezer burn or you know those two words in our culture don't leader and servant don't seem to go together but that's the way God designs leadership leadership involves servanthood and we see this here in Jesus's words God does not value pride because he is God and we are not God values humility it reminds me of the story of the rancher and the IRS man. You know, the story where the IRS man goes to the ranch and summons the rancher and says, I think you've been cheating on your taxes. And the rancher knows he hadn't been. And so the IRS man said, I'm here to inspect your ranch and your property because I think you've been hiding some property. So the rancher says, all right. But see that field over there with a the barbed wire around it? special barbed wire, I wouldn't go into that field. And the IRS man says, what? Do you know who you're talking to? He reaches in his back pocket and he pulls out a badge and it says U.S. Treasury agent. He says, you know what this badge means? It means I can go anywhere I want on your land. It means I have the power of the federal government behind me. You got that? And the old rancher said, 
Yeah. And he just goes off to his chores. And so he's working. And a little bit later, he hears this screaming. Screaming! And he looks up from his tools and he sees the tax man. Sure enough, he's in the field. And he's running for his life, just sprinting, screaming, help, help. And the rancher's longhorn bull is chasing him. So the rancher puts his tools down, runs over to the fence, and says, your badge, your badge, show him your badge. (laughs) That reminds me that God does not value pride in his creatures. He values humility in his creatures. And because of Jesus' maximum humility, by dying on the cross, he's doing a little, a smaller act of humility here in the foot washing because he's forecasting what he's going to do tomorrow. The ultimate act of humility, dying on the cross for the sins of the world, doing the will of God. Because of that, we're going to see in a few minutes, Jesus is rewarded. The Father rewards Jesus to the maximum, matching his maximum act of humility. The last thing about this verse that I'd like to point out is that Jesus says in verse 7, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. What Jesus is saying is, what's going to happen is the disciples are not going to fully understand what Jesus did in terms of the foot washing and and Jesus' words until he dies, is resurrected, and the Spirit comes to inform and, and, and help the disciples. We, when we believe in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit guides us and teaches us. And these disciples are not going to fully understand all this until the Spirit comes. Then we get to the end of verse 8. Jesus answered him, If I did not wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, we can't have fellowship with Jesus without His spiritual cleansing. What is First John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and uh, to what? To cleanse, right? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 9. Simon Peter said to Him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. So Peter says, well, if I can't have fellowship with you, then bring it. Wash it all. Wash my feet, wash my, wash my hands. Wash my head, just wash it all. Peter's still confused. He still thinks Jesus is talking about physical cleansing. Verse 10. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Jesus is explaining that salvation, he's doing a metaphor here, that salvation is like a bath. When we, when we believe in Christ, we stop being the enemy of God and we become the child of God. And in that instant of faith in Christ, all of our sins are forgiven. It's like a bath. Our past sins, our present sins, our future sins, they're all forgiven. Acts 10.43 And we become a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 That's this metaphor that... Jesus is using when we believe in Christ when we're saved it's full the full cleansing of a bath but after that there's still a problem 
there's still a problem. I, I was saved as a kid, but I still sin every day, and so do you, either in thought or in deed or in word. And so God offers us a, a solution to our problem, which is confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9, after we've been saved. Verse 11, For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. Judas had not been cleansed, had not, in, in, the, in the analogy, in the metaphor, had not taken the bath. Judas was an unbeliever, and, and the Apostle John makes that clear in the Gospel of John. In John 6, verse 70, 6, verse 70, Jesus describes Judas as a devil. In John 13, verse 27, John tells us that the devil entered into Judas. In other words, he was possessed not by a garden variety demon, but by the head of demons, Satan himself. That means he was an unbeliever because believers cannot be demon-possessed because we are indwelt by God. And then finally, in John 17, verse 12, as further evidence that Judas was an unbeliever, Jesus calls him the son of perdition, which means the son of destruction. There are two people in the Scripture who are called the son of perdition. The Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2 and Judas Iscariot in John 17. So this unbeliever is getting his feet washed. Notice what Jesus does. He even washes the feet of Judas who will betray him in 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Judas receives his feet washed by Jesus. What is that? That is another offer of salvation because Jesus loves his enemy. Loves his enemy. So he, his, the foot, foot washing for Judas was another offer of salvation. The foot washing for the 11 who are believers, that represents post, forgiveness of post-salvation sins. In other words, confession of sin. Verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? So now Jesus has finished the task of washing their feet. He, re- he gets back to the table and he resumes his position of teacher, teaching them with words as opposed to this, this physical act of foot washing, teaching. Verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord and you're right, for so I am. Jesus is saying, you're right. You recognize that I am the Lord, that I am the master, that I'm in charge, that I'm the boss in all caps. And you're right about that, he says. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also, to, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Jesus is saying, since I'm the master, I set the standard. There's a big difference between do what I say and do what I do. Right? If I say, don't do this sin, and don't do this sin, and don't do this sin, and I'm over here and I just love those sins, I'm always doing those sins. You say, well, Garcia, where's your credibility? You got no credibility. There's a big difference between saying, 
between, between someone saying, do what I do versus do what I say. Jesus says, do what I do, which is humble service, humble service to God. The standard that Jesus is setting here as the master, as our master, is a standard of humility. Humility. And that humility expresses itself in service to God. Please turn to Philippians 2, verse 3, which was the scripture reading from, uh, from this morning that Mark read. Philippians 2, verse 3. Here, Paul gives us this description of what Christ did and His attitude. In Philippians 2, 3, we read, Do nothing from selfishness, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude. This attitude of what? This attitude of humility in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bond servant. That's the Greek word doulos. Put a little sticky. I love stickies. My, my desk, I always have stickies everywhere. Put a little sticky on your, in your brain with the, with the Greek word doulos. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. He is described here as a doulos, but emptied himself, verse 7, taking the form of a doulos, of a, of a bond servant is, is the way it's translated here. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Paul's, I think, making a point here for us. Jesus had an attitude of humility. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus' example that he gives us is not so much the literal act of foot washing. There's nothing wrong with with the, there are some traditions in some churches where they wash each other, other's feet. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the, the example that Jesus is really giving us. He's giving us an example of an attitude. Because as a man thinks, the Proverbs say, so he is. Jesus is talking about our thinking. He wants us to have an attitude of humility and then that expresses itself in action. We're going to come back to Philippians 2 here in, here in a moment. John thirteen sixteen, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is greater than the one who sent him. If Jesus the master is called to serve, then he's saying, don't you think you're called too? Because you're my slave. Slave. That, that, that's a pretty strong word. It's the Greek word doulos. People could become a slave in ancient times in all kinds of different ways. You could be a soldier and, and you, you lost a battle and you were enslaved by the nation who you lost the battle to. You could be born into slavery. You could be a father who the, the family owes money and you don't want your family to, be, to become slaves so you sell yourself into slavery to pay off the debt. There are many ways to become a slave, but this term is a term of total submission. Often, 
It, it, it's translated in, in, our, in our text either as bondservant, as we saw in Philippians 2, or as slave. But often we use bondservant when I think the better translation is slave. That's, that's literally what it means is slave. Bondservant is a term that, I mean, we don't really use that term. I haven't used the word bondservant outside reading the text ever, maybe. The literal definition of doulos is slave. And the point that Jesus is making by using these terms master and slave is he's drawing a contrast between what the culture sold people then and what the culture sells people today, which is that it's all about you. It's all about you. That's the message of the culture. Get some. Get money. Get sex. Get power. Get fun. Get entertainment. Get popularity. Just get some. Because it's all about you, baby. That's the message of the culture today. And it's actually not that creative. It was the message. It's been the message of the culture forever. Because the culture values pride. And the message of the culture is you have power. We all have power. We all do. If you're a parent, you have power. If you're a grandparent, you have power. If you're a, a, an employer, you have power. If you have any money, you have power. If you have Bible doctrine in your soul, you have power. The question is how you use that power. We're called to use the power in humility because we're called the slaves of God. And just go home and look in the mirror and say, slave of God. We're in good company when we're called the slaves of God. Moses, the Old Testament prophets, the apostles, Jesus himself is called the doulos of God. The point here is, we are called to submit a word that the culture finds most disgusting. Submit to the God who is. Often the word humility is viewed as passiveness or weakness. That's how often that word is viewed. And the unbelieving world looks at Jesus and says, Oh, how sweet. Right? Because Jesus says, I am gentle in Matthew eleven twenty nine. The King James translates that to meek. I am meek and humble in heart. And the culture says, Oh, how sweet. What a sweet Jesus. Because they don't understand the power of the God man. They don't understand that humility, when Jesus uses the word humility, it not only means thinking of yourself less often, but it means restraining power and using power not for self-aggrandizement not for me to stroke my ego or for you to stroke your ego but when Jesus uses when the scripture and Jesus used the word humility it's about using power for God's purposes restraining power so I'm not using it for myself I'm using it for God this same Jesus who describes himself as meek and gentle is the same Jesus who carefully, methodically weaved a whip so that he could whip the money changers in the temple. And he took their tables in great force and power and throws them up because he is so offended that they take a house of worship, the temple, and turn it into a house of commerce. This is the same Jesus who in the Garden of Gethsemane, the same Jesus who is meek and gentle, 
But in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the guards come with their clubs and their torches to arrest him, and Peter pulls out his sword and whacks off the, the guard's ear, Jesus picks up the ear, sticks it back on his head, and he turns to Peter and he says, Put your sword up. Don't you realize that I can summon twelve legions of angels and my Father sends them to me like that? In other words, I can vaporize these soldiers, but I don't. Because I restrain my power. I use it not for my own purposes, not for my own will, but for the will of God. That is humility. Humility is restrained power as we see through Jesus the God-man. Verse 17. If you know, the Greek word there is oida, which can mean know or understand. If you know, if you understand these things, you are blessed if you do them. What's Jesus saying? He's saying God rewards those who serve Him with an attitude of humility. That's really the only way to serve God. Obedience always precedes blessing. And we see that first with Jesus. I don't know if you still have your, your, your finger in uh, Philippians 2, but uh, if, you can, if you can toggle back to Philippians 2, 8, we see this example of how God has eternally rewarded the servant of God who came to serve, not to be served, and who tells us that we are to serve as well in humil- humility. Philippians 2, Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here we go. For this reason also. For what reason? It's for the reason Paul just said in verse 8. Because he died on the cross, the ultimate act of humility in service to God and God's people. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Muhammad... Every knee will bow. Is that what it says? So that at the name of Buddha, every knee will bow. Am I misreading that? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see what has happened? Jesus is fully God, fully man. As God, He has always been God. Co-equal with the Father, co-equal with the Spirit. All the attributes of deity. Omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. Above every creature. But in His humility, He added humanity to His essence. He came as a man. Lower than angels. Fully God, fully man. In His humility, He submits to the torture and the crucifixion imposed by the Romans and the Jews, the Jewish leaders. As a man, he dies on the cross for us. And so what does the Father do? He's In his deity, he's already above every name. But in his humanity, he is now elevated above angels. And so every human being will submit and will bow the knee to the judge who is Jesus, the God-man. Verse 17 is telling us Jesus is telling us, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. We too will be rewarded just like He's rewarded. No, we're not going to be elevated to where He's elevated, of course. 
But he's saying, if you do these things, if you live in humble service to God and to God's people, then he's going to reward you. We saw rewards last time, last time we were together. How, how do we do that? We use our spiritual gifts that he's given us, not for our own promotion, not to prop ourselves up, not so I can feel, oh, I'm a great guy, but for God's purposes. For God's purposes. Verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus is saying there's no blessing for Judas. Because in his arrogance, he will betray me. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus chose the 12 disciples. The choosing here, I know the ones I have chosen, it says. This isn't about election. This is Jesus chose 12 men. And he knew that one of them would betray him. But because God, if I can say this, is the master chess player, times a trillion, he chooses Judas, knowing that Judas will, will betray him, because Jesus is singularly focused on getting to the cross because He loves you and me. And He wants and will pay for our sins. So He chooses Judas, but that doesn't excuse Judas's sin. The sovereignty of God and the free will of man both coexist in human history. But the 11 here, the believers, they're thankful. Remember I said at the beginning, we're going to see humility, love, and thankfulness. Here's thankfulness. The eleven are thankful. In humility, they're thankful for the Lord's ministry. Judas, in arrogance, has this attitude of entitlement. That's the opposite of thankfulness. He's got this attitude of entitlement. That's why he's skimming money out of the money box. We know from John 12, 6, he would steal money, John tells us in John 12, 6. This phrase here at the end, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. That's a quote from Psalm 41.9. And so Jesus chooses Judas knowing that Judas will fulfill the prophecy of Psalm 41.9. The eleven are humble. And that produces thankfulness in their hearts. Humility always precedes thankfulness. We see that in Psalm 100 verses 3 through 4. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. In other words, we don't come from monkeys. Right? I mean, we could use some scientists like this, like George Washington Carver. He reads this and says, well, duh, it's God who made us. So that's a statement of humility. Evolution is a statement of, look at us. Look at we humanity. We have evolved from monkeys. Look how great we are. Evolution is a statement of pride versus humility. It is humble to recognize, well, of course God made us. We're not here by accident, right? This iPhone, if I, if I say this iPhone is the product of a combination of molecules that somehow banged together and morphed into an earlier generation of an iPhone and then that banged together with molecules and it's another generation of iPhone and, and, and another generation and now I have this iPhone I'm a, I'm a moron 
I'm a colossal idiot. And the world would call me that and they'd be right. But if I say that the universe, which is infinitely more complex than my iPhone, if I say that that's an accident, now I'm a great thinker. There's something wrong with that logic. That is a statement of arrogance. And so this passage here, Psalm 100 verse 3, is about humility. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Verse 4, enter His gates with thanksgiving. Humility precedes thanksgiving. And His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. Verse 19, From now on I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am He. Jesus is encouraging His disciples because they're going to think all is lost in the morning when He is nailed to a tree. He's encouraging them. He's saying, I've been in control all along. All along. I chose Judas to fulfill the prophecy. I fulfill prophecy. And actually, the end of this verse, the He at the end of the verse, you'll notice in your, in your Bibles, is italicized. Because Jesus is saying, I want you to know that I am. He's claiming deity. And He wants to encourage them because tomorrow they're going to be discouraged when they see what happens. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. This is a final word of encouragement from Jesus. The eleven are united with Jesus and with the Father. And Jesus is saying, whoever receives the apostles receives me. And whoever receives me receives the Father. We receive the apostles because we have the apostles' words in the New Testament, which are the words of Jesus. So when we receive the apostles, the message of the gospel, we receive Jesus. And when we receive Jesus, we receive the Father. So what we've seen today is that we're called to serve in humility, in love, and in thanksgiving. In my closing moments together with y'all, let me talk about this upcoming Thursday. We're going to celebrate the national holiday of Thanksgiving, right? But there is a movement afoot to kind of downplay Thanksgiving, to downplay the holiday of Thanksgiving. In fact, one journalist recently called it a food holiday with a troubled history. Today, I want to go back. I want to take you back to the first day that our nation, as a nation, had a proclamation of thanksgiving. Now, I realize that the pilgrims celebrated Thanksgiving in the 1600s. They were the very first Thanksgiving in Massachusetts. But I want to talk about November 1st, 1777, when your Congress and my Congress declared a national day of Thanksgiving when we were in the throes of the Revolutionary War, of the, of the War for Independence, against the most powerful nation over the face of the earth at that time, Great Britain. And so we're in adversity. We're not in sweet pro prosperity in 1777. We're in adversity. And I'm going to read to you a portion of this National Day of Thanksgiving that our Congress declared. And you're going to fall out of your seats. Because you're not going to believe it. 
you're not going to believe the words of the Congress of the United States of America. Let me read it. It is therefore recommended to the legislative or executive powers of these United States. They're going to recommend this because at that time they couldn't cram things down the throats of the states. I'm not going to go too far with that. That's a, that, that's a topic for another day. It is therefore recommended to the legislative or executive powers of these United States to set apart Thursday, the 18th day of December next, back then they did it in December, for solemn thanksgiving and praise, that at one time and with one voice the good people may express the grateful feelings of their hearts. That's humility. And consecrate themselves to the service of their divine benefactor. It was an old way to say God. But that's humility again, consecrating yourselves to God. And that together with their sincere acknowledgments and offerings, they may join the penitent confession of their sins, whereby they had forfeited every favor. This is Congress asking us to, to go to God and ask for forgiveness of our sins. And their humble and earnest supplications, an old word for, for begging, whereby they had forfeited every favor and their humble and earnest supplications that it may please God through the merits of Jesus Christ mercifully to forgive and blot them out of remembrance. Did I mention that this is the Congress? That it may please Him graciously to afford His blessing on the governments of these states respectively and to prosper the public counsel of the whole to inspire our commanders both by land and sea and all under them with that wisdom and fortitude which may render them fit instruments under the providence under the providence of almighty god to secure for these united states the greatest of all human blessings independence and peace that it may please him to prosper the trade and manufactures of the people and the labor of the husbandman, an old English word for farmer, that our land may yield its increase to take schools and seminaries of education so necessary for cultivating the principles of true liberty, virtue, and piety. Congress wanted to promote seminaries where men could be trained to go out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Why do they say that? So seminaries of education so necessary for cultivating the principles of true liberty, virtue, and piety. They understood that the nation stood or fell on this book and the principles of this book. And that makes sense because all the original universities were, were established as seminaries. Harvard, Yale, William and Mary. And to prosper the means of religion for the promotion and enlargement and here comes the kicker of that kingdom which consisteth they're going to quote scripture they're going to quote Romans 14:17 for the promotion and enlargement of that kingdom which consisteth quote in righteousness peace and joy in the holy ghost this was the day of proclamation of thanksgiving where congress asked each of the states to ask their people to set a day apart in, in humility to thank God for the forgiveness of our sins and for a nation where we can worship. And so each of the states, their legislatures considered what to do. So this is the legislature of 
of Massachusetts. Now, this is a different Massachusetts than today. But Massachusetts said this. State of Massachusetts, Boston, November 27, 1777. So 26 days later. Agreeable to the above recommendation of the Honorable Continental Congress by the advice of the Council and at the desire of the House of Representatives of Massachusetts, we have thought fit to appoint and do hereby appoint Thursday, the 18th day of December next, to be observed throughout the state as a day of public thanksgiving and praise. And we do hereby call upon minister and people of every denomination, Christian denomination, religiously to observe the day accordingly. And then they end the proclamation. It's there on the bottom of the screen. God save the United States of America. Not God save the King. God save the United States of America. So this Thursday, when we celebrate Thanksgiving, let's celebrate it with a feast. Nothing wrong with food. But let's celebrate it in remembrance. Let's, let, let's follow what our, what our Congress did, our Continental Congress asked us to do in 1777. Let's celebrate it as a day to give thanks and praise in humility for the forgiveness of our sins through Christ for the establishment of this nation where we can worship God in peace. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for our nation. We thank you for the grace that you've shown us. We thank you for the leadership of those great godly men and women who helped form this nation in the very beginning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we receive through your Christ. And we ask that you challenge us. We ask that you give us a revival in this nation. Pull us, prod us, kick us if you need to. But push us towards you. And we ask for mercy for our rebellion against you as a, as a culture. Finally, we ask that you challenge us for this Thursday to, to remember to honor you and give praise to you and to give thanksgiving in humility. And we ask that you challenge us by the word, challenge us by Jesus' example of the small act of foot washing and his huge act the next day of forgiveness, of dying for our sins through which he gives us for forgiveness. Challenge us to follow his pattern in humble service not in promoting pride, but in humble service to you, recognizing that you are God and we are not. And we pray these things in the name of His majesty, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Whose almighty hand 